Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Losing your hair is like losing a part of you. It's losing a part of your identity. Those who suffer from a rare autoimmune disease often deal with frequent stares and questions. Not everybody who doesn't have hair is sick. And we get a lot of, oh, is she sick? You know, we'll pray for her. How are her treatments going? Tonight, the mistress of Downton Abbey talks about living with the mansion's former inhabitants. There was one night when there was some people upstairs. There was nobody in the castle spot for me, and they were clearly having a party from years past, and I, I couldn't cope, actually, so I ran out. You mean like ghosts? Well, it wasn't me having the party. You want to be a judge? Say yes. Yes. All right. <laughs> Is your mother guilty or not guilty? Not. Not. <laughs> Good evening. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Michelle San Miguel. And I'm Pamela Watts. How much time do you spend on your hair? Getting it cut, washing, brushing, styling. It's a part of your self-expression. But what if your hair suddenly and rapidly fell out? It can feel like losing a part of your identity. That's the reality for some 6 million Americans who suffer from this disease. Their hair loss can range from small patches to total baldness. While it's not life-threatening, those who have it say it is life-altering. Tonight, a woman and a young girl who have alopecia are sharing their journey on being bald and bold. It's a hard world, and I, I didn't want her to have to have any, any extra battles to fight that she doesn't need to fight, and this is a big one. Chelsea Silveria remembers feeling confused as she watched her daughter Riley gradually lose all of her hair as a baby. Soon after Riley turned one, her hair began growing back in patches. That's when Chelsea took Riley back to the doctor. He said, well, let's rule out some of the scary stuff. They did some blood work. All of that was normal. So that's when we went to see um, a dermatologist. And then we went from one dermatologist to the next. And, you know, they all confirmed it's alopecia, which is rare under the age of two. Come on. Come on. Come on. Alopecia areata is an autoimmune condition that causes hair to fall out from the scalp and other parts of the body. Scientists aren't sure what causes the immune system to attack the hair follicles. What was your thought when you hear your daughter is diagnosed with alopecia areata? Gut-wrenching. Because? She's my little girl. You know, you, you want your girl to have long, beautiful hair, and you don't want to have to accept that there's something different, you know? Most of the people who have the condition don't have a family history. That's the case for this 11-year-old from Bristol. Riley doesn't remember life with hair, but she's also not one to dwell on what-ifs. Instead, much of her time is spent doing gymnastics. She dreams of someday competing in the Olympics. Do you ever wish you had hair, or are you glad that you don't have hair? I'm glad that I don't have hair, because at gymnastics, um, if you wear a ponytail and then you have long hair, and if you do like a back handspring, you can um, like get your hand on your hair and then you can mess up and it would hurt. So it's an advantage to you not to have hair, 
Do people, can I ask, ever say anything hurtful because you don't have hair? No. But over the years, it has taken a toll on Riley. You're the most special girl in the whole world. Hair doesn't matter. Okay? When she was just six years old, her mom recorded this video of Riley and her dad talking after Riley said she didn't love herself because she's bald. It doesn't matter if you're bald or if you have hair. That doesn't make any difference, sweetie. You want daddy to shave his head? I'm going to shave my head. Want me to do it right now? Okay, let's go. We get it nice and short, just like Riley's. Nice and baldy, dude. People who have any type of differences get looked at, you know, you worried about, are they going to get made fun of? Are they going to find love one day? You know, what is her life going to look like? Is she going to be okay emotionally? Dr. Lynn Goldberg has seen firsthand the emotional roller coaster that comes with hair loss. Some patients tell you that, you know, they wake up every day and just have to put on this armor just to go out and face the world. Dr. Goldberg is a professor of dermatology at Boston University School of Medicine. She also directs the hair clinic at Boston Medical Center. People think they're sick. People assume they have cancer. You know, people say terrible things to younger patients. They compare them to, to you know, figures like without hair. Like, it's terrible. It's terrible. A lot of bullying, things like that. So it is a terrible, terrible burden for some patients. And some people deal with it better than others. Oh, yeah, king me. Chrissa Casales knows what it's like to be stared at and made fun of. Years ago, we went on a family trip, um, and I had a guy who gave me a hard time about not having hair. He, um, you know, thought it was funny that I was always wearing hats to protect my head. Casales lives in Walpole, Massachusetts, with her husband and three kids. She began losing her hair when she was 23. For several years, she would get corticosteroids injected into the bald patches of her scalp. Here, even on your wedding day, you were already experiencing alopecia. Yes. But you so, had so much hair, you were able to cover the hair loss. So much hair that I was really able to cover, you know, certain patches of the hair loss. After years of injections and seeing her hair regrow only to find more bald patches, Caselis asked her husband to shave her head for good. That was nearly two decades ago. Do you remember that moment pretty vividly when your husband shaved your head? I do, I do. I remember, you know, feeling I wasn't sure if I was going to laugh or cry at the time because it was just such a hard, you know, I was so relieved in a way, but at the same time wasn't really sure what the future was going to bring now being you know, totally bald. It definitely remains tough because of the fact that people just aren't aware of what alopecia is and automatically assuming other things. I like to educate people. When someone asks me, you know, are you sick? Or, or they say, you know, God bless you, your journey's gonna be great. And I just, I now just take a step back and I say, thank you, it is gonna be great. Casales knows everyone's journey with alopecia is different, including that of Massachusetts Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. For the very first time, Massachusetts Congresswoman Ayanna Presley is publicly revealing a personal battle she is facing. This is my official public revealing. I'm ready now because I want to be freed from the secret. I'm so proud of Ayanna because 
her journey was so quick with having alopecia. It wasn't something I experienced, but something that she experienced and many other people in my alopecia support group that I speak to have experienced hair loss almost overnight within a matter of days, weeks, that they've literally lost all of their hair. Caselis was excited to share news with her support group over the summer that the FDA approved for the first time a treatment for alopecia that targets the whole body. It's an oral tablet called Olumiant. Here you have been waiting decades yes. for a drug to come on the market that has the FDA's approval, and yet you're telling me that you can't use this. So as I understand, um, it really works more efficiently for someone who has alopecia for less than 10 years. And for someone like me who has had alopecia for over 25 years now, um, or coming on to 25 years now, this is, um, you know, it's not for me. It is true that when you have severe loss, the longer it goes on, the lesser the chances you have of regrowing. So for patients with uh, recent loss, if they're interested in the drug, you know, the, the time is now, right? The sooner that you, you try, the better. Casalis isn't losing hope that another treatment will work for her, but she says she doesn't mind being bald. It's definitely a different look. Yeah. How do you feel wearing it? I feel good. I feel good. Most of the time, Casalis doesn't wear a wig. She says she prefers to use it when it's cold outside or when she's in an uncomfortable situation like a job interview. I would definitely, you know, consider wearing my wig as opposed to not wearing my wig because I think that people would, you know, often judge and look at, you know, me as having an illness and being sick because I don't have hair. Do you want to wear a wig or would you rather not wear a wig? I don't want to wear a wig. You don't want to wear a wig? Mm. Why not? I don't know. It's just my head sometimes. <laughs> I got your jack, Mommy. Riley has also tried topical steroids, but it wasn't effective. No. This one's a good one. She finds strength in other friends who have alopecia, including model and dancer Christy Valdeseri. She's the first bald sports illustrated model. What does Christy always say? Bald is beautiful. You can do anything, it doesn't matter if you have hair or not. Chelsea says she works hard to help her daughter feel confident as a bald girl. I think the biggest thing is teach your kids that not everybody is the same. She's doing so well, but I know we'll have some difficult moments, and I hope they're few and far between. But, you know, we've got a good group of friends and family that'll get us through that. Up next, imagine waking up in a castle every day just like Sleeping Beauty. It's not only the stuff of fairy tales. One woman is living this real-life fantasy. She recently visited our version of Noble Estates, the Newport Mansions, to tell her story of Downton Abbey. Your Majesties, welcome to Downton Abbey. It's one of the poshest addresses in the world the setting of the enormously popular PBS series, Downton Abbey. That's the fictional name of the real-life Highclere Castle in England. It is large. Who would build a house today with 250 or 300 rooms? It's not something you conceive, you don't need it. So you're left with something from all of our pasts, 
and you're trying to make it relevant today. They must have had a way to get down to the sea here. In her past, Fiona Herbert says she worked as a fashion designer and trained as an accountant. She wasn't to the manor born, yet now bears the title Lady Carnarvon. It's a home that I'm stewarding for my lifetime with my husband. And, you know, you go to bed and you're relieved and hope you sleep well. And then um, my husband brings me a cup of tea in the morning, so that's the first thing. The normal things of everyday life. Normal things, but hardly a normal life. Herbert lives with her husband, Jordy, the 8th Earl of Carnarvon at Highclere Castle. It is both home and hospitality business, as well as a movie set, a marketing platform dream. Hello, this is Downton Abbey. Still, on a recent speaking tour at the Newport Mansions, Lady Carnarvon claims she never expected to be a countess in a palatial estate. <laughs> I just, I, I, I thought I'd met a lovely man and just followed each day by day, actually. Didn't you go to a family dinner and think about, oh, someday my husband inherits this house. And I didn't, because his father was very much alive and I hadn't really thought about it, nor did I realize what I'd committed to when I married my husband. I didn't give it any thought. The couple's close friend, screenwriter Julian Fellows, was a frequent house guest. He'd been stayed with us quite a few times before he came to Rote down to Nabby, so he had High clear in mind because he knew how the dining room worked. He'd been sitting at the table and he knew, you know, where Louis and the real butlering team came in from, or, um, you know, he'd had many a drink in the drawing room <laughs> or, or sat in the library. Or he wrote some of the second series sitting in the library. We all went to church and prayed and he sat and write. And what a story he wrote. A 12 season series and two feature films all about the Crawley family. Really, Granny, how can you say that I'm too worldly, but Sybil's not worldly enough? You cannot be so contrary. I'm a woman, Mary. I can be as contrary as I choose. Lady Carnarvon says storytelling is what keeps homes like hers from becoming just dusty old buildings. It's always the stones and the bones of the people who've lived there. And it's the laughter, the sound of the tragedy. And that's, in a sense, what Downton Abbey also shared. The house held them together. I think it was an anchor, and I hope Highclere is in real life an anchor. But it's through the characters, the people, through what happens to Anna and Bates and Downton Abbey and in what you care about. So that's what kept us entranced. It's not a story about a museum. But actually living in a house that's like a museum can have, as you might imagine, its creepier moments. Late at night, if you were there alone, is it ever spooky? Sometimes it has been. There was one night when there were some people upstairs. There was nobody in the castle apart from me, and they were clearly having a party from years past, and I, I couldn't cope, actually, so I ran out. You mean like ghosts? Well, it wasn't me having the party, but someone was banging around upstairs. Felt like they were having a party. And it was one o'clock in the morning, so the dogs and I scarpered. Perhaps especially scary because there have long been whispers of hauntings brought on by the curse of the pharaoh. Lady Carnarvon is publishing yet another Highclere book about her husband's great-grandfather, the fifth Earl of Carnarvon. He financed the expedition of archaeologist Howard Carter, who discovered the tomb of King Tutankhamun in Egypt 100 years ago. Shortly afterwards, the Earl died an untimely death blamed on the curse of the mummy. Did you believe in the curse? Well, I think you should always take huge care, I mean, with going into a tomb. But 
the pharaohs did write all these curses and spells around their tombs to try and dissuade people from disturbing them. I think I'd probably do the same, but you know, wherever you bury your ancestors, you don't really want people digging them up. However, digging around vast Highclere Castle, ancient Egyptian artifacts were discovered in the walls. My par-in-law and my husband found various treasures hidden between cupboards in 1987. So yes, what so did they find? A, well, it's a whole Egyptian exhibition running through the cellars of the castle now. So works of art, and they've been viewed by Queen Elizabeth, one of many monarchs who have visited Highclere Castle. Lady Carnarvon's husband is the Queen's godson. What's she like? She's a countrywoman. She's very straightforward, and I just kind of followed suit. So the first time I met her, I wasn't yet married, and. Geordie simply told me at four o'clock that we were going to have supper with his parents and the Queen would be there. So there's no time to think or to worry. Lady Carnarvon, as a member of the aristocracy, a lot of Americans might wonder how you feel about the future of the monarchy. I think the Queen is, is the most extraordinary woman who has given us an anchor and a sense of reassurance. And particularly in the last two years, when she's still quietly been there, as a still, small voice of calm. Yet behind the calm, there has been turmoil and accusations of malice in the palace, especially from Prince Harry and his wife Meghan Markle. They exited their royal duties in 2020, citing the unbearable pressure of their roles and their strained relationships. I think that every family has its own challenges to get through. And I think, you know, Prince Charles is her heir and Prince William and Catherine and they have come into the royal family and are working to try to continue the tradition which will inevitably develop and take different courses afterwards. Evolve and into a more modern monarchy, do you think? I, I don't think you want a modern queen, you just want the queen. So I don't necessarily think modern is always good, relevant is always good. But we don't want the Queen dressing from Zara. Is that modern? You don't want that. The Queen is the Queen. And I think there's something about a mystique. So I think the Queen and the house and our traditions can give us a sense of structure, which is what we all look for. It's been said that America is the land of second chances. A judge here in Rhode Island has taken those words to heart. Frank Caprio is known for giving those who come before him a heavy dose of kindness and a chance to make it right. Tonight, the judge gives us his take on getting a second chance. I haven't met the person yet who hasn't made a mistake and needed a second chance. It's all part of life. I mean, it's 100 bucks. I'm going to dismiss it. I appreciate it. And I wanted to say, never have I met a judge like you. I'm not going to comment on that except to say this. I don't do anything different than what I was taught to do by my parents. My name is Judge Frank Caprio, and this is my take on second chances. I believe it's second chances because it, it's, it's part of life. It gives a person the opportunity to not only recognize their mistakes, but to do something positive 
about it. In our daily life, I would suspect that most of us make at least five mistakes a day. Simple stuff. Maybe we take the wrong turn on the street. That's a mistake. Maybe we say something we really didn't mean to say. Oh, simple stuff. We're talking about major mistakes. People, some people commit crimes. That's a whole different. That's a whole different situation. I was going to the blood work for my boy. He's handicapped. You were taking your son to the doctor's office? Yeah, I take him for blood work mm -hmm. every two weeks because he's got cancer. You are a good man. My entire life I've been given second chances. I was born into a poor family of immigrants, right? So going through school, it was very difficult. You know, I, uh, when it was time for me to go to college, I had to work to get through college because we couldn't afford it. And then it was time to go to law school. I couldn't go to law school when I graduated from college because we didn't have enough money in the family. So I had to then find a way to go. So I had a second chance. I was able to get a job teaching school in Providence. I had a second chance. I was able to go to law school. I had a second chance again, right? Was, I was married. I was running for public office. All of these things were second chances for me. My first time I was elected to the city council, I served for eight years on the city council. Thereafter, I ran for attorney general and I was defeated. I got a second chance in life. Second chance led to me ending up being a municipal court judge, which has opened new opportunities for me and given me a unbelievable opportunity to give others a second chance based on my experiences in life. You wanna be a judge? Say yes. Yes. All right. Is your mother guilty or not guilty? Not. Not. <laughs> I give many second chances, and I see some people who prosper after having a second chance, and others who fail. One of the uh, one that is more endearing is I had a young man come before me uh, not too long ago. Yeah, I'm waiving the penalty. Oh, okay. You're free to go. Oh, but I want to tell you something about... Uh, my life. Well, let me get comfortable. Uh, but, hey, okay, just I want to tell you thank you because like 20 years ago, I was a bad boy. Like I'd be here every month to get uh, a speeding limit ticket, drunken driver, and I spend $53,000 to be, to be a citizen. I have 16 years citizen of the United States. You told me by that time, I'm uh, 18, 18 years old, and you say, why you wanna be later? You wanna be in jail? You wanna be die? Or you wanna be somebody? And I say, I wanna be somebody. And I took... No, I wanna hear it. <laughs> I took my CDF. I'm a truck driver. Thank you, you. <clears throat> yeah, that's great. That story has been repeated numerous times with uh, a number of people, and that is uh, very rewarding to me. God love you. Congratulations on turning your life around. Come up here. I want to shake your hand. So second chances, in my judgment, are the key to success for most people. 
So we learn by our mistakes, and when we are given a second chance, right, that's like a new life for us. It's a fresh breath of air. It's like the sunshine coming out after the darkness. And that's why second chances are very important. Finally, a sneak peek at a story we're going to bring you next week. An in-depth look at a troubled young man known to social workers as boy number 402 in the 1940s. The boy grew up to be Albert DeSalvo, better known as the Boston Strangler. I had read about an interesting study that a husband and wife team at Harvard, Sheldon and Eleanor Gluck, both law professors, had conducted on juvenile delinquency that began in the early 1940s. The Glucks focused on 500 inmates at the Lyman School for Boys in Westboro, Massachusetts, America's oldest reform school, long since closed, basically a prison for juvenile delinquents. So these are first-hand documents from the social workers who were meeting with these boys and giving fairly fairly full detail. Unbelievable detail in a way that um, they were like a re reporter's reporter. Not only were, were they um, you know, sitting down with the boy at, at the Lyman School, that would be the initial intake, but they also would describe their features, the kind of wonderful detail a writer likes to see. Um, and then when they did follow up in their homes, they, they would describe the layout of the living room and the walls need, or, you know, are peeling. They had an unusual eye for detail that went beyond the, a Q&A, for example. So I was flipping through these folders and came to the folder numbered 402, um, flipped it open, and there at the top of the intake sheet was the name Albert DeSalvo. Albert DeSalvo. My jaw dropped. I was like, Whoa, what the heck? Albert DeSalvo was one of the, you know, 500 boys? You know, it was really a rattling moment. Turns out, boy number 402 would ultimately confess to being New England's most notorious serial killer. That's our broadcast this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm Pamela Watts. And I'm Michelle San Miguel. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, you can visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly or listen to our podcast available on all your favorite audio streaming platforms. Thank you. Good night.